It's the Texas Standard on a Monday. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us. What you got there in your hands? Cell phone, maybe? We always seem to have our cell phones with us or close at the ready. Speakers that not only project sound but listen to us talk. And, of course, there's the possibility of the country's first robot brothel in Houston. I suppose you put all that stuff together and it's probably fair to say that we, the people, have reached a complicated period in our relationship with the machine. Now there's an art exhibit exploring the dawn of that relationship and how we think of ourselves. Sue Canterbury is the curator of the Dallas Museum of Art's presentation of Cult of the Machine, Precisionism, and American Art. Sue, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about why you chose uh, Cult of the Machine. I mean, because that does sound fairly dark here. Well, it's a two-edged sword in a sense. Well, the Cult of the Machine, uh, there was really this obsession between the two world wars about uh, the machine, and basically in a sense that it was seen as an enhancement of life on one hand. Some people even thought it might, you know, of course, it would be bringing peace and prosperity, etc. And then on the other hand, you had individuals who were concerned about it, that they saw it in a sense of, you know, almost like a robots taking over life. They mm-hmm. were afraid that, you know, as workers, particularly on an assembly line, that they would become slaves to the machine. You see a lot of that fear, I suppose, in something like, and this is what it reminds me of, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, right? Yes, yes, definitely. And uh, that's sort of a dystopian sort of thing that um, machines were seen almost as a Frankenstein character that's going to prey upon them. Why do you think that there was this zeitgeist? I mean, we're talking about this period you mentioned between the two wars, so we're really talking about the 1920s and the 1930s, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. On one side, you know, people were looking for basically reassurance after the World War One, and also I would say the flu pandemic. They're looking for, you know, a reassurance you know, that would basically restore order to their lives. And mm-hmm. generally this period is called a return to order. This is also the time in which uh, we're seeing huge monuments to the accomplishment of the human species, I suppose you could say, with the erection of skyscrapers, like, for instance, the Empire State Building. It it was really a building explosion in New York. Several things were going on that led to the rise of the skyscraper. Basically, the skyscraper really became emblematic of America itself, and particularly of New York. But for it to happen... Uh, basically, it required some technological advances for it to even occur. The key one for that was going to be the invention of the steel frame architecture, you know, the interior skeleton of the steel. It would carry a lot more weight, and then it meant that the exterior walls were only a sheathing of skin. Up to that time, the load bearing was done by thick brick walls. Mm. It meant you could go much higher. And the other thing that was necessary was the invention of the high-speed elevator. You know, you had both of those occurring for in the uh, Woolworth building, actually, which opened in 1913. That building, along with the steel frame architecture, the, um, the high-speed elevator, right. you know, all these things come together. People, some people looked at these skyscrapers as machines themselves. So New York was a city of vertical machines. We're talking about these cultural and technological innovations. How did they express themselves in visual art? 
there was also a movement at that time that was sort of anti-art. You know, we had some influx from European artists who uh, basically weathered World War I in mm-hmm. New York. You know, people like Duchamp, Marcel Duchamp and uh, Francis Picabia, who uh, were Dadaists and they were anti-art, but it was a very cynical thing. And at that same time in New York, you had American artists who were meeting them, but they were also responding to calls for the democratization of art. This one fellow, Robert Cody, who was heavily influenced by Walt Whitman, and in fact, precisionist artists looked back to Walt Whitman as sort of like their prophet, who praised America and the advances of America. Whitman, and as well as this younger fellow, Robert Cody, were calling for artists to depict things that were distinctly American. Mm -hmm. So these things are American art. These are castles and cathedrals, more to speak, you know. So, yeah, that's a fascinating observation, the castles and cathedrals, because this was, in fact, the dawn of what came to be known as the American century, right? Exactly, exactly. And it was these things that all came together. And so that when you have all these machines, they're turning out these beautiful, well, they they saw them as beautiful, these beautiful objects, machined surfaces, smooth, perfected in their form. And while all of these things were geared to form following function, you know, whatever the function of that machine part might be, mm-hmm. They became so attractive. Of course, the artists were trying to depict these very smooth surfaces within their paintings, um, very planar, very simple, stripped down of detail or texture. So that aesthetic, the superficial aesthetic of machines and machine parts is something that's carried across into the art itself. Right. And, you know, that's one aspect of it. But you even had the situation where because people like these things so much, they started demanding it in their consumer products. And so you see streamlining in cars yeah. and all, all these other sort of things. Right. Radios and, and, and that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. We've been further pixelating ourselves as you know new technological innovations come forward. How do these grand designs of yesteryear, how do people relate to them today? I think the re- it's Maybe not so much relating to the size of the the grandiosity of, you know, the architecture, but I I think it's more embedded in the sentiment because the relevance for us today is our relationship with technology, the flood of information, how does one control it, how does one stay on top of it? I mean, anyone who has a cell phone. Who is a master and who is a slave? I mean, it is like an addiction. And it's basically we're still trying to come to terms with technology in in modern times. And while it gives us, you know, has uh, great convenience to uh, source specific information, whatever, we're constantly being challenged to upgrade to the next thing or we're having to learn yet a new platform. Sue, do you have a favorite piece in the exhibit? Oh, uh, yeah, I have (laughs) several, actually. One of my favorites is um, a a wonderful expression of how the machine aesthetic uh, really was dominating uh, art and design at the moment in time. And it's a pair of gates, a set of gates um, that were uh, 
originally installed to the executive suites at the Shannon Building in New York City. The building is still there. The gates now belong to the Cooper Hewitt, uh, but they are covered with cogs and gears, uh, you know, along both sides. Uh, they're part in steel and part in brass, and you have this vision of this really wonderful moment in within Art Deco design uh, at the Shannon Building of you know this interest in cogs and gears as a design element in and of itself. We've been talking with Sue Canterbury. She is the curator of the Dallas Museum of Arts exhibit on the cult of the machine, precisionism and American art. Ms. Canterbury, thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us in the Texas Standard. We sure do appreciate it. Oh, you're most welcome. It was my pleasure. <laughs>